This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Former communist Whitaker Chambers, who wrote in his famous book, Witness, about his role testifying against Alger Hiss, talked about the two irreconcilable faiths of our time, communism and freedom. And I think that black-white distinction, for the most part, still holds. Yet for many Americans today, the lessons of the past have had little to no effect on their thinking, and they find themselves enthralled by this utopian vision of so-called equality that's already spectacularly failed all over the world and left more than 100 million corpses behind. Why would this calamitous experiment in human economics and culture remain such an appealing concept for Americans who've grown up in the freest and most prosperous country in the world? It really is strange to see it. But we're going to talk about it today with Ian Murray. He is the Competitive Enterprise Institute's Vice President of Strategy and author of the new book, The Socialist Temptation. Ian, it's great to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's wonderful to have you here and good timing, too, because we know what these statistics are showing, don't we? We see increasingly a number of younger Americans in particular really embracing socialism, despite the fact that there's so much evidence to refute why they shouldn't be for socialism. Why do you think this failed idea is a temptation for people? Well, I think uh, the, the first thing that we have to bear in mind is that uh, when we say it's a, it's, it's a failed idea, uh, a lot of uh, socialists do not accept that, uh, that, that it has failed. Right. And they do so by uh, employing a rhetorical trick. Um, th- th- there's actually an identifiable phenomenon that every time a, a, a socialist state is set up, People always say, yes, this is it. Here it is. It's the real socialist state at last. Uh, We're going to have that utopia. We're going to have the International Brotherhood of Man. And then after a few years, uh, the uh, internal contradictions of socialism that I talk about in The Socialist Temptation uh, start to come into play and the wheels start to come off the economy. But at this point, they turn around and say, well, this can't be the fault of socialism. We know socialism will work. So it must be the fault of saboteurs or wreckers or, uh, or, or the CIA or something. And in fact, I think that's where we are today with Venezuela, yeah. uh, that, that uh, they're blaming the CIA for what's going wrong in, in, in Venezuela. And then finally, when, uh, when everything is, uh, has gone to heck in a handbasket and the... Um, uh, the, 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 uh, the economy is completely and utterly collapsed, and uh, there may be many, many thousands dead. That's when they turn around and say, oh, well, this wasn't real socialism. Right. Uh, the, um, mistakes were made. Uh, the, 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 uh, socialism wasn't implemented properly, uh, so, so, so we can discount that. And so socialism has this sort of get-out-of-jail-free card <laughs> that it is always playing, uh, that, that uh, enables its supporters to, say, to, to discount uh, the mistakes of the past, discount the tragedies, discount the millions of dead, 
and all, and always start from a blank slate saying, no, no, this time we're going to get it right. Yeah, they do say that. I've heard that for years, and they always say that. But what's funny is, do you ever hear any of them saying, we have an example of capitalism working really well? We have more than one example of capitalism working really well. So why is it socialism never works very well? Have you ever heard a socialist actually give a good answer to that? Oh, uh, the, the, the socialists will always deny that uh, capitalism uh, actually w- uh, works well. Uh, they, they will always point to what they would term uh, the unfairnesses or the exploitations or, or the systemic problems uh, of, of capitalism and say that uh, capitalism uh, is... Uh, is, is, is not uh, a good system. It is, uh, the, the capitalists uh, say it is perfect. None of us do, of course. Yeah. Uh, capitalists say it is perfect. Uh, th- th- they're wrong. Therefore, we must try socialism in- instead. Uh, th- there is never an acknowledgement that, uh, that, that capitalist works for the, uh, capitalism works for the little guy, which it has done uh, across the globe uh, for the past 200 years. Uh, capitalism has raised living standards and raised, uh, raised people's uh, uh, educational and, we- and health uh, outcomes, and uh, none of this is ever acknowledged. Uh, it is only the, 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 the faults of capitalism that socialists will ever acknowledge. Right, right. And the average American probably isn't doing a lot of reading on the history of communism if that person is young enough to not remember the Cold War, they'd have to go to books and they'd have to actually read and inform themselves on what happened in the history of socialism. It's interesting, you mentioned in the book that after Trump's election, that was kind of a turning point where you had more people turn from favoring capitalism to favoring socialism. To what do you attribute that? Was it the passage of Obamacare that really was successful in getting people on the socialism bandwagon? Or what do you think really happened there? Yes, I, I, I think there, there, there were two things uh, at play. Uh, one certainly was uh, the passage of, uh, of, of Obamacare and uh, a, f- a feeling that, uh, that that was a move in, in the right direction. Uh, the, the other thing was uh, the, the, the ongoing uh, ramifications from the financial crisis yeah. and the feelings that the banks had, uh, had, had, gotten, uh, had done something bad and gotten away with it. And that, uh, and, and that uh, was uh, uh, emblematic of something that was deeply wrong with capitalism. Right. Now, that would especially be true of the activists and the people of Occupy Wall Street and whatnot. But what about the average 17-year-old, for example, who would be surveyed? What do you think? I mean, this, you have younger and younger Americans who are saying socialism is great. Is it that you are getting that additional ideology fed to them in the schools? How much of that is a factor? Well, I think uh, that, that that is uh, very much a factor. Uh, my uh, colleague Phil Magnus has done uh, a, a study of uh, American college syllabuses, and uh, he's discovered that the uh, the second most prescribed text uh, in all of American syllabuses is Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. Mm, yeah. Now, it's not being prescribed in economics class. It's being uh, prescribed in history class, mm. in English class, in uh, uh, anthropology, in sociology, in any of the classes that have the word studies after them. So uh, basically most, uh, m- most kids uh, who are studying humanities at a basic level in college are being fed the Communist Manifesto with nothing to balance it. Good grief. So they're getting a one-sided propaganda 
kind of education as opposed to hearing. And on the flip side, let's talk about what happened when communism was a huge threat to the world and talk about the old Soviet bloc. That's not being taught concurrently with kids reading the Communist Manifesto. Uh, no, no, absolutely not. Uh, uh, they're being taught about the, uh, about the Second World War and the dangers of Nazism and fascism, but they're not being told what happened uh, in the Soviet Union before the Second World War with the Holodomor and the, yes. uh, the, 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 the mass starvation there. They're not being taught what happened in China after the Second World War with the, uh, the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, both of which killed literally millions of people. Exactly. Well, going back to this issue of socialism being alluring to so many modern Americans, you say one of the things you mentioned is that we have to delve into cultural cognition to try to understand it. What is that all about? Well, that's the theory that, uh, that, that American political beliefs uh, are, are very much uh, associated with, uh, with underlying values. And there are essentially three main value, uh, value groups in America. Uh, one is uh, the egalitarian value group that values fairness above all. Another is, for want of a better word, the libertarian uh, value group that values freedom above all. And finally, there's a sort of traditionalist value group uh, that values community above all. Mm-hmm. And if you can talk to, uh, to people at the level of their values, then you are probably likely to influence their political, uh, political choices uh, after that. So uh, the, the, uh, the cons- uh, conservatives and free market movement uh, in, in America uh, sometimes talk in values, but often talk about, it, about things in terms of politics. Socialists very much talk at the level of values. Uh, they say, you know, America is an unfair society and we need to change it. And uh, all of their rhetoric is about that unfairness, you know, appealing very strongly to that egalitarian value group. And they also do a good job of, uh, of speaking to the, to the freedom and community value groups as well. And that sort of gives them a head start, especially with young people for whom values are more important uh, than politics. Well, that's a really important point. We'll come back to it. Ian Murray with us from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. The name of his book, The Socialist Temptation. We'll return to the conversation right after this. Stay with us. Did you know that over 18 million babies have been aborted worldwide since January 1st? Every single one of these babies died during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why isn't the world declaring these babies as lost? Here's Dan Steiner, the president of Preborn, a ministry dedicated to saving babies' lives from abortion through ultrasound. I sense God's broken heart over the issue of abortion. You see, he sees every little baby that's being formed in the mother's womb, and it breaks his heart to see when the lifetime that he has planned plan for them is taken from them violently so often. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you help show that these babies' lives are not forgotten? Preborn is there for women in crisis who want to make the right choice, but society tells them that a preborn baby is not a human life. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. Preborn shines light into a mother's womb, introducing her to the beautiful life growing inside of her. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. 
The cost of one ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds cost $140. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I'm going to keep my baby, and I'm going to be a great mom. Every baby's life is important. Would you please join with Janet Meffer today and Preborn in the Cause for Life? All gifts are tax deductible. And when you donate, you'll receive an ultrasound picture, along with stories of other babies' lives that were spared. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, President Trump has said America will never become a socialist country, but it's very hard looking across the spectrum these days to say, "Ooh, I don't know if he's 100 percent right. And a lot of Americans are very fearful about it. Americans who remember what happened during the Cold War and way preceding the Cold War with the Soviet bloc and all the countries that were affected by socialism slash communism, China and so many other nations around the world. Many Americans understand how dangerous socialism is, but increasingly you're seeing younger Americans buying into this idea that socialism is going to solve all of our problems. We're talking it over with Ian Murray, who is the vice president of strategy for the Competitive Enterprise Institute and author of The Socialist Temptation. Now, before we went to the break, Ian, we were talking about how cultural cognition comes into the discussion and how that really addresses why socialism is so alluring to a lot of people in the United States. You were saying that really people who are backing socialism have done something that has been effective, and that is addressing people according to their values not so much their politics, but their values. And I'm interested in finding out what have you seen happen because of that? How are they actually connecting with some of these Americans on a values level to make their message palatable again? Well, I think that, well, the, 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 the <coughs> excuse me, I think that what's happening is that, uh, that, is that uh, people are, as, as I said before the break, people are, uh, think that there's something wrong with, uh, with, with America at the moment, and they're looking uh, for solutions at a, at a very, very basic level. And the thing about socialism is, yes, uh, it, 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 speaks to, uh, it speaks to values at a, at a, very, uh, a very tangible level, but then it goes on to provide easy solutions. Yeah. Uh, those, uh, the, the solutions make intuitive sense. You know, uh, for, for the egalitarian, the, uh, uh, the, the, the solution is uh, there's a lot of money in this country. It's very unfairly distributed. All we need to do is just take some from, the, uh, from those who don't deserve it and give it to those who do deserve it. Right. It's a very easy solution. For, the, uh, for, for those who value freedom, you, you say, oh, well, uh, you can't be free unless uh, you have agency. And agency requires resources. So socialism will help provide those resources by that easy solution of taking from one group and, give, and, and, and giving it uh, to another. Uh, and it will, it will say to those who value community, you, you're... you're uh, your communities have been uh, devastated by uh, by capitalism. Uh, what, what we need to do is uh, go back to the 1950s when everybody had uh, a union job. And if you have a union job, uh, then, then, then everything will be right again. All of these are very easy, intuitive uh, uh, solutions. The trouble is, as we know, 
uh, from, uh, from, from the economics and history of it, they just don't work. No, they don't, especially when you have Bernie Sanders and AOC going around saying that college should be free, college should be free. Talking on a should-be level negates the fact that it doesn't work, like you've mentioned, but also it doesn't talk about the unfairness of stealing from Peter to pay Paul. I mean, why in the world should some people work? And I mean, we do this on some levels with some social programs, obviously, but why should somebody who's worked hard and saved pay for your kid's college education? That seems to be where the socialists don't want the discussion to go, lest people actually think it through. I think I think that's exactly right. You know, one of my uh, favorite uh, authors, uh, he's probably been cancelled now, uh, Rudyard Kipling, uh, who wrote The Jungle Book, among other things. Yeah. He wrote a, 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 a brilliant poem uh, in, in the 1890s called The Gods of the Copybook Headings. Yeah, and, and in one of those verses, he says, in the Carboniferous Epoch, we were promised abundance for all by robbing selected Peter to pay for collective Paul. <laughs> but though we had plenty of money, there was nothing our money could buy. And the gods of the copybook headings said, if you don't work, you die. Wow. And I think it's, it's those copybook headings uh, that are our best answer uh, to, to, to the easy solutions of, of, the, uh, uh, of, of the socialists. Uh, you know, the, 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 the idea that if you don't work, you die is, is, is very important uh, in answering uh, the, the, these uh, solutions. Right. That's exactly right. Of course, they always try to repackage socialism as well. You have democratic socialists, you have various kinds of socialism, but that's the one they like to package in the United States. Bernie Sanders is a democratic socialist, but all socialism, as you say, still subjugates the individual to the collective. Why is that an important thing for people to understand, that, that there is a necessary loss of freedom? As soon as you cave to socialism, you are losing your individual liberty by definition. Well, indeed, this is, this is one of the great contradictions of, 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 of democratic socialism. Uh, they, they say that, uh, that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, they say that their form of socialism, this new form of socialism is different because it's going to be democratic. And who is against democracy? Yeah. Well, when you think it through, as, uh, as, as you have to, you realize that uh, you know, the, the, the people themselves as a body uh, cannot be in charge of overseeing everything to make sure that it that, that, that it's fair and uh, and socialist uh, instead you have to delegate power to uh, to, uh, to to a certain uh, sect of uh, sector of people mm-hmm. those people are going to be bureaucrats right. and those bureaucrats will in the end inevitably because of the power that the democracy has given them they will then become a, a new ruling class, a new elite. You know, this is what George Orwell was talking about in Animal Farm. Right. You know, in the end, uh, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Yes. And those, uh, the, 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 those new pigs are going to be the bureaucrats. Right. So when you look on the ground at the worst of socialism, where you had people thrown in prison or thrown in psychiatric hospitals for being dissidents, or you had, the, you know, the famine of Stalin and, and all the things that have happened through the course of human history under the banner of socialism. How do they get away with not talking about that? I mean, obviously, they don't have to talk about anything they don't want to discuss because it's uncomfortable. But why have we seen, in your estimation, looking at the entire ideology of socialism, why does it always become violent and deadly at some point and have to throw its enemies in jail and have to make people poor and have to make people suffer the way they have? 
Oh, the, the, the trouble is, it's because of these these contradictions of uh, of, of socialism. Uh, they always they always end up. Uh, causing uh, economic problems. Uh, there will always be a class uh, that, that, uh, that has, to be, has to be dealt with. Uh, in, in, the, in the Soviet Union, for instance, it, it, it was the kulaks. Uh, these were um, uh, uh, richer peasants uh, who, were, uh, who were actually doing very well under the old, uh, under the old system. And we're beginning to feel uh, feel feel a pinch under under the new system, um, and therefore we're forming uh, an incipient resistance uh, to to Stalin's rule. So Stalin uh, realised that they had to be eliminated. Right. Um, so. Uh, it, it, Socialism can't brook any opposition. It can't brook any uh, any provision of uh, private of, of public or social goods by by the private sector. So anything that attempts to uh, to, to provide those goods has to be eliminated. Yeah. Uh, time after time, we see that uh, that, that, that the only way in which these uh, uh, these things that, that that serve as a contradiction to uh, to socialism. Uh, the only solution that socialism comes up with is a violent one. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And you look at the body count of the Holodomor and it's just horrendous about what was it? About four million Ukrainians died in that famine. Yes, at least three million. It may be many, many more. Wow. It's, it's just scary. You know, this is such an important thing because we talk, we lament what's going on and how you have many younger Americans really buying into socialism based on propaganda techniques and so forth. But how do we address this? What do you think are some of the best ways that we can address, especially the younger generations of Americans, being fooled into this false notion of socialism and its utopian aims and the, the ability of America ever to be better if we embrace such a horrendous system? Yeah, I, I think we have to talk at, 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 at the level the level of values. Uh, you know, um, uh, uh, socialists are very good at, at saying uh, capitalists are greedy and using the, the language of sin uh, just like that. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we can do, this is something that Margaret Thatcher actually did very successfully in my native Britain, uh, was turn that around and say, well, no, socialists are actually motivated by envy. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so that negates the, uh, the, 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 the sinful language coming from the socialist and replaces it with, a, with, with a, uh, 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 another, uh, another uh, values-centered uh, uh, message com- coming from the opposite direction. Yes. And I don't think we're, we're, we, we see enough of that. We're very good at talking about economics and aggregate GDP and things like that, but we're not very good at, uh, at, at talking at that level of values. So I think that has to be uh, our number one priority. Yeah, I miss her. I wish you'd bring her back somehow. (laughs) 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 She was great. And wasn't she also the one who said at some point you run out of other people's money? That's been a longstanding quote of hers as well, I believe. Oh, yes. The the trouble with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. Right. One of of the great, great quotations. Yeah, she was right. But it also takes a population that is informed. And I guess that's always a struggle when you are informed to look around and tell people you need to read more, you need to know more. What sort of things can we do to overcome the ignorance? 
Well, I, th- I, I think I, I mentioned George Orwell there, and I think uh, <laughs> reading George Orwell's uh, uh, stories at a young age is, is very important. Uh, so, you know, so if you have a, 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 a young teenager, then make sure that they read Animal Farm. Yes. If you have an older teenager, make sure they read 1984. And I think that the, the, the messages of those books uh, can really hit home. Uh, so, so, so that's uh, that's two tips I would give. Yeah, absolutely. And also the Socialist Temptation, which is your book. <laughs> I think this is a great, great resource. I really do because I, I'm always thankful to see a book like this because it really is helpful to be able to instruct a new generation of Americans on an old lie, the lie of socialism. The Socialist Temptation, the name of the book from Ian Murray, who's been kind enough to join us. It was a delight to have you, Ian. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thank you again. Take care. We'll be back right after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Californians have had plenty of issues to fight in court during this pandemic madness. And one of the issues that's moved to the front burner is the mandate from Governor Gavin Newsom prohibiting in-classroom education for roughly 80 percent of the state schools. But parents are pushing back in a lawsuit that challenges this order. Just recently, more parents have signed on to the legal action challenging its constitutionality. And the suit has included some important testimony from world-renowned experts showing why it is safe to send kids back to school. We're going to get some details now from Harmeet Dillon, who is an attorney, owner of the Dillon Law Group, and also founder of the Center for American Liberty. Harmeet, great to have you with us. How are you? I'm great, Janet. Thanks for having me today. Thank you so much. Well, Governor Newsom had issued these rules several weeks ago for schools and counties that are, I guess, being monitored by the state for high COVID-19 rates. How many schools and children do, do these orders actually affect in the state of California? Well, the way the governor did this is part of his approach in general, which is to try to avoid uh, being held responsible for these crushing orders by tying them to certain metrics that his team made up in each county. So he's saying that if your county is on his watch list, then your county cannot open the schools, whether private or public. And in in uh, effect, that is 80% of the population of California residing in anywhere from 32 to 38 counties, depending on what day it is, uh, are unable to go to school in person despite whatever precautions their school may have taken and arrangements made to protect the particularly vulnerable people. And this is obviously devastating to most families, but particularly to people who are digitally challenged, children with special needs, uh, minority populations are more negatively impacted by this and income populations that are challenged are negatively impacted by this. And so we're really leaving behind 
the most vulnerable Californians, creating potentially permanent scars on these young children, which is unacceptable, which is why we filed this lawsuit. Yeah, exactly. Now, what about the data, the hard data on children and the actual deaths, the actual hospitalizations? We hear about cases all the time, but what sort of data are they using in the state of California to justify this really widespread shutdown of the schools? The California Teachers Union, unfortunately, is really using this uh, serious issue of COVID as a tool to obtain their political advantages. And they are calling for a number of things that have nothing to do with education. That's kind of a standard operating procedure for them. The science, and I put that in scare quotes, uh, (laughs) uh, upon which they base this is, is baseless. There is no science to support the shutdown of the schools. In fact, many European countries and some others have opened the schools successfully. The risk to children uh, of, of fatality from COVID is approximately one in a million. It is a lower risk than many childhood diseases uh, because they simply, they may be carriers, uh, even that is questionable, but transmission from child to child is virtually non-existent and transmission from child to teacher is virtually non-existent. Uh, and so really the focus needs to be in this situation the handful of vulnerable children who may, you know, of course, if you have comorbidity like diabetes or uh, some kind of immunosuppressive uh, disorder, you may be vulnerable. Or an elderly teacher, teachers above the age of, I, almost, I shouldn't say elderly because I'm in this category, but <laughs> above 45, you know, uh, uh, would, be, uh, would be vulnerable. And, and, and even they are not that vulnerable uh, if the school puts in some, some protocols. And so, what all of this policy is suggesting is assuming, rather, that schools are status quo ante, that they are not making any changes, when in fact every school is making changes, every family has made changes, and many schools, particularly the private schools, have made elaborate changes and provisions for social distancing, reducing classroom size, holding some classes outdoors, screens, et cetera, et cetera. But no, the governor has imposed this one-size-fits-all death sentence, if you will, on education for California kids. And that is going to leave. I'm I'm sitting here in Sonoma County right now. Um, I just read a newspaper article that 90% of the kids in our local public school do not have broadband, do not have Wi-Fi. It is impossible for those 90% of those kids, mainly minority, to be able to get educated this fall. That is is a shocking violation of their civil rights of epic proportions. And nobody on the left is saying that. That's a great point. And that's a really strong point in this lawsuit. And not to mention the fact that it's unconstitutional, which is another issue you're addressing. And the fact that, in fact, Newsom is exceeding his authority. Because I'm curious about this. What about these arguments that have been made saying the governor can do as he sees fit under his broad powers in a health crisis? I mean, this has been going on now for some five months. At what point does the legislature actually have to make these decisions rather than Newsom just dictating from on high? The legislature does not want to make these decisions. The legislature is in office uh, right now or and can't come back. They have an ability to do their job, but the governor is giving them cover uh, because, you know, look, there are some hard choices to be made here. I personally, as a uh, granddaughter of two doctors and daughter of one, uh, I believe in science and I believe that certainly people should take precautions. Uh, I am and my husband is. So I'm I'm not one of those, hey, let's, you know, master, you know, crazy and let's, you know, just let it all hang out. That's that's dumb. But there's a middle ground in between these uh, extremes. And and those are that's where the hard choices lie in the middle ground. And the governor is not making those hard choices. He is punting because there is no lobbying organization 
for parents and children. And so the lobbyists of the California Teachers Association are speaking louder. The governor himself has four small children, but he's a multimillionaire (laughs) and he can educate them at home. But the rest of the the vast middle has no choices. and, And that is the problem. And so to your question about his emergency powers, the legislature did, you know, many years ago, give significant powers to the governor. But obviously, those powers cannot be untrammeled. And, and, you know, what's interesting for your listeners, potentially, is the Supreme Court case that all of these courts are using to justify extreme powers and, frankly, abuse of power by the governors is called Jacobson. The Jacobson case was also used in bad points in our history to justify the forced sterilization of so-called imbeciles in our country. That's mm. a case called Buck versus Bell. Yeah. Uh, Clearly, we would not accept that today. Clearly, we would not accept what happened in Wuhan, which is welding the door shut of people who are sick with this disease. Would that fit under the governor's emergency powers? We know there has to be some outer limits of it, but so far the courts haven't been willing to draw that line. We keep trying. Uh, My Center for American Liberty and my law firm have collectively filed over 15 lawsuits around the country on these issues. Uh, We've successfully uh, pressured the governor of California to change a number of his policies. But uh, in terms of courts, courts outside California have been willing, including several courts in New York, uh, most recently one on Friday, to say that the governor's uh, powers are being exceeded, particularly in cases of religious ceremonies, weddings, etc. And so we are hopeful by citing those authorities to California courts that some judge is going to get the memo that the Constitution still applies in in a pandemic and protect us. Good. That's really important. And you mentioned, I know about parents. I know a lot of these parents say they're struggling with remote learning. You have the lack of broadband access that you mentioned a few moments ago. But of your plaintiffs, what are some of their main concerns here? Sure. Some of our plaintiffs are are not just, uh, you know, minorities, but actual immigrants where English is their second language. And, you know, there are immigrants from Africa. There are immigrants from other parts of the world as well. And for them, you know, the reliance on either private school education in a Catholic school or other parochial school or public school education is critical for their children to being properly educated. And I think that's uh, that's one fact. There are other children, several parents who are sitting on behalf of their children and one minor child who are uh, special needs children under federal law and state law. They have a right to individualized plans that meet their needs and maybe speech therapy physical therapy, uh, emotional, and other uh, counseling-type services, that are simply not being delivered for almost any special needs kid in California. Uh, It is impossible to deliver speech therapy services, for example, remotely. Uh, And so these are some of the challenges. Another challenge is single-parent households where the mother, and it's always the mother uh, (laughs) almost, where the mother has to give up her job. And in this situation where people are barely getting by, where the government, where Nancy Pelosi is blocking uh, extension of the, um, of, of the uh, support that families need, uh, you're putting that uh, mom in the situation of choosing between her kids' semi-education at home because she's not a trained teacher or, or eating. Wow. What kind of a choice is that? Exactly. Total failure by the California government and considering that. Really important stuff. We're out of time, but Harmeet Dillon from the Dillon Law Group will watch this case with great interest. Thanks a lot, Harmeet, for the update. We'll be right back. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. 
As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. Or call now 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. Since Roe v. Wade, more than 60 million babies' lives have been taken through abortion, and there are millions of additional preborn babies whose lives are still at risk. But the Ministry of Preborn stands in the gap with young moms in crisis, helping them to choose life. When I saw my baby for the first time on an ultrasound, I just felt so shocked and so surprised. I was just so scared. After learning all my options, I chose life. It was important for me to make the right choice. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States. They're the direct competition to Planned Parenthood, helping moms to make the choice of life. And you can help. One ultrasound is just $28. Would you join with Preborn in the cause for life? To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at Janet Meffer. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Getting back to the COVID-19 data, CNN and other outlets reported about this American Academy of Pediatrics report that's come out on children and COVID-19, a state data report. This is also from the Children's Hospital Association. And it's, oh, children, oh, they're all going to die. And of course, we mourn any child who comes down with COVID-19, especially children who are hospitalized or, or who die. We don't want that, obviously. But I'm reading through this report and some of the stuff they just don't put in the CNN story. Things like the definition of child. This is on page two. Age ranges reported for children varied by state. Some states were between the ages of 0 and 14. That constituted a child. And 0 to 18 constituted age ranges for children. And then we have the 0 to 19, the 0 to 20. And my favorite, the 0 to 24-year-old category. Because there's so many children heading back to school, buying their pencils, buying their little backpacks, going back to school at the ripe old age of 24. Lots and lots of 20... This is what's going on, folks. You have to read the actual reports that are being put out here and you see what's going on. How in the world can you constitute a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old, or for that matter, a 24-year-old as a child? You know, how does that work? I'm not really sure how that works. Then I'm looking at the mortality data, and this is data from 44 states and New York City. Children were 0% to 0.8% of all COVID-19 deaths, and 20 states reported zero child deaths. In states that were reporting, this is virtually all the states, 0 to 0.3% of all child COVID-19 cases resulted in death. And it was just what Harmeet was mentioning in the previous segment. Children don't really transmit to other children. 
So, you know, the fact that your child is going to be undergoing a death sentence simply by showing up at school, I don't think is at all supported by the data, even by CNN's standards here of going nuts over this report. So here we are. It's just madness. Now, I want to get into a little bit more madness. I don't know if I'm going to have enough time, but I'm going to do my best. Did you hear this story about this Nashville, Tennessee councilwoman who wants people who don't wear face masks to be charged with attempted murder? That seems reasonable. Just another reasonable council member. Sharon Hurt, an at-large councilwoman of the Nashville Metro Council, joined a meeting between public safety, beer and regulated beverages and health hospitals and social services committees and said during the meeting, according to the Washington Examiner, my question goes back to legislation, but my concern is, you know, I work for an organization that if they pass a virus, then they are tried for murder or attempted murder if they're not told. And this person who may very well pass this virus that's out in the air because they're not wearing a mask is basically doing the same thing to someone who contracts it and dies from it. Okay. It seems to me that we have been more reactive as opposed to proactive and a little too late, too little. So my thing is maybe there should be legislation, stronger legislation. Maybe there needs to be stronger legislation to say that if you do not wear a mask and you subject exposure of this virus to someone else, then there will be some stronger penalties as it is in other viruses that are exposed. I know this is not the most well-crafted sentence here. I'm just reading the copy, folks. That's good. Charge people with attempted murder. What are you going to charge Governor Cuomo with? What are we going to do about him? Because he was the one who sent all of these people with reported COVID-19 diagnoses back into nursing homes. Just talk to Janice Dean from Fox News about that, who lost her in-laws, the thousands of people who died because they had COVID-19 cases sent back into nursing homes. What should Governor Cuomo be charged with? Nothing. He's in New York. That's how this works. Here's another story. Missouri Democrat Cory Bush defeated this 10-term incumbent in the recent primary election. CNS News is reporting that allies of Representative Rashida Tlaib, as they were awaiting this result of her closely watched primary, uh, in the meantime are celebrating a progressive win in Missouri where a Black Lives Matter activist has toppled this 10-term incumbent. In Missouri's overwhelmingly Democrat First Congressional District, which includes St. Louis, Cori Bush defeated Representative Lacey Clay in a rematch after she lost to him by 20 points in a 2018 primary. During her 2020 campaign, Bush received endorsements from, guess who, Bernie Sanders. She had campaigned for him during his presidential run, as well as Justice Democrats and Democratic Socialists of America, among others. Clay lost despite having been endorsed earlier by the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So I guess progressive just doesn't cut it anymore. you got to be a full-blown commie in certain areas. you got to be a commie. That's it. And this is kind of funny. This came out from the AP reporter on race. More than 100 black male leaders sign a statement of solidarity requiring a black woman vice president. Is that how it works now? Requiring. As someone who has said throughout the campaign that Vice President Joe Biden needs to choose a black woman VP, the urgency for that pick has gone from something that should happen to something that has to happen. It disgusts us that black women are not just being vetted in this VP process, but unfairly criticized and scrutinized. And according to this reporter, they're now saying Biden will lose the election if he doesn't pick a black woman to be VP. That's how it's working now on the left. Seems to me that you ought to be selecting your VP based on credentials. Credentials, credentials. Doesn't work that way anymore. Not on the left. And then there's this. This is via legal insurrection. 
This is very disturbing, actually. Remember Occupy Wall Street and all those dirty tents they all threw up and we all had to listen to this nonsense in the streets of New York? Well, it's time again for dramatic, decisive action. This is from a group called Adbusters. Adbusters was the group credited with creating the Occupy Wall Street movement that occupied not only Zuccotti Park in downtown Manhattan, but a lot of news coverage back in 2011. And now Adbusters has put out a new directive. They have a new project, a 50-day siege of the White House in the run-up to the November 3rd election. Let me read to you what they say on their website. They say, all right, all you activists, it's been nine years since we set off the political earthquake of Occupy Wall Street laying siege to New York City's Zuccotti Park and inspiring thousands of similar protests around the world. The Occupy anniversary arrives September 17th, 2020, and it may be the perfect day to trigger another global Big Bang moment, a massive collective action of the sweetest kind of disobedience. The why hardly needs recitation. Because for these nine years, the shadows have only grown longer. What, from the deep state? Inequality has soared. Not a single Wall Street CEO spent a night in jail for his role in the 2008 financial meltdown. Politicians and corporate criminals continue to savage the public trust with impunity. And all the while, this howling void of a president, his sins too many to name, sits smugly atop a corona death toll that may surpass 200,000 Americans by Christmas. Right. What happened to China? Did President Trump somewhere create this virus in a lab in in Washington, D.C.? Maybe he went out to Virginia to do it in his spare time. No, it came from China. Remember the old China virus? Anyway, they say it's time again for dramatic, decisive action, which is why on September 17th, in the original and enduring spirit of Occupy, we and tens of thousands of our fellow citizens will stream into Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. We will lay siege to the White House and we will sustain it for exactly 50 days. This is the White House siege. A siege only works if it is sustained. We witnessed this, the multiplying power of a strategic occupation. Nine years ago, you dig in, hold your ground, and the tension accumulates, amplifies, goes global. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. I think that's going to help Trump, frankly, if they lay siege to the White House. And nice to give proper notice to the FBI. (laughs) Hey, we're going to go nuts on September 17th. Fantastic. By the way, didn't they just admit themselves in this copy that Occupy Wall Street was a big, huge failure because not one Wall Street CEO spent a night in jail for his role in the 2008 financial meltdown? So why would you try it again? We were so unsuccessful last time. Let's give it another go. I just wonder at what point you're going to see average Americans just have enough. You might have seen some of that video footage of those Fort Collins, Colorado guys. You got to love them. They ran Antifa out of a neighborhood in Fort Collins and they followed them. And then Antifa started taking swings. And and there was one moment that I kind of enjoyed. And it was a, a patriot taking an American flag and jabbing the Antifa guy with the point of the American flag. Not too hard, not enough to hurt him or put him in the hospital or make him bleed or anything like that. But I just thought that was kind of a funny visual. And then we have in Seattle, a big protest to support the police. So who knows? Maybe these people, these radicals have overplayed their hand. Maybe what they think is progress, in fact, isn't progress, but it's just going to awaken the sleeping giant, unlike the sleeping giant was awakened in 2016. That's always a possibility. You never really know. In meantime, they're going to be having more protests, by the way, in California over 
what has been going on with shutting down churches and the mask mandates and the school closures and all the rest. SaveCalifornia.com has that information. All kinds of gatherings are planned in places like Costa Mesa, Sacramento, Garden Grove, and on and on and on. So you can check out that website if you'd like more information on that. Lots going on. Pray for this country as always. Thank you for being with us on Janet Meffer today. We appreciate you and we'll see you next time.